Deb, you can be seated. And uh, you know, as many of you know, because uh, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, uh, it was 40 years ago this month that I became a Christian, that I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was not raised in a, a very religious home at all. And so when I was 17 years old, 40 years ago, I, I accepted Christ. So it's been kind of a nostalgic month for me, just reflecting back on all these years of following the Lord. And uh, one of the things I've been reflecting on is, is my early experiences with church, because a lot of what drives me today are you know, some of those early experiences, both good and bad. I think we can all relate to that. And what I felt and experienced in the church that kind of drove me to uh, how I think church should be today. And I think I'm rather moderate in the way that I approach things. And what I mean by that is that I'm, I'm not super progressive, though I think the church obviously needs to move on and change uh, generationally, but I'm also somebody who appreciates tradition a lot, especially the older I get. And, and one of the traditions that we had when I first became a Christian 40 years ago in, in a couple of the churches I attended is that when the gospel reading was read, people would stand. And we're going to read the gospel now, and I thought, you know, I want people to stand, but they just were standing for a while, and you just had got seated, but I don't care. I want you to stand. <laughs> I want you to stand right now for the gospel reading. Amen. You can clap at that. Yep. And, uh, and believe me, you're going to get to sit for uh, maybe longer than you want when we're done with this. So... <laughs> So I'm going to read out of our Palm Sunday story. It's really simple, but very profound, as we'll see today. I'm going to read out of John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. So just kind of soak this in, and then we'll get going. It says, On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast in Jerusalem came. And when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him. And they began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, for it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colts. And as they used to say, thus endeth the gospel reading, you may be seated. You know, when you think about it, it's an incredibly, incredibly simple story, Palm Sunday. I mean, we teach it to our kids in Sunday school today, and the younger ones will probably draw a picture of it. What will they draw? A man riding into town. That's about how complicated this story is. A man rides into town. It's just that, as we all know, that man is Jesus, and the town is Jerusalem. And here's the key. Why he came into town is what's going to make all the difference. That's what I want you to wrestle with right now because we're going to pray in two seconds. Why did Jesus come into Jerusalem and what are the implications of that? With that said, why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, uh, if I don't miss my guess, there are, uh, there's a lot of diversity here and at Cactus and Northridge and Chapel, those watching online, uh, because Lord, we've all had very different kinds of years and even week behind us. And, and Lord, some of us come in here today get rather beat up and need a really good word from you. Others of us come in here primed and ready for the year ahead with a lot of hope fueling our lives, and we also need a word from you. As Father, I pray that as we rally around this very simple but profound story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, that God, we would not be afraid to allow the, the cascading effects of that one event to cascade through our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. 
So I use the word twice in my prayer and I want to delve into it now. I want you to think about that, that idea or, phrase or word cascade. I want you to think about the concept of cascade. It was actually kind of funny. I, I thought I knew what the word meant and so I looked it up in the dictionary this week and here's what Webster's Dictionary says about the word cascade. You ready for this? It says a cascade is something occurring in a succession of stages so that each stage derives from or acts upon the product of the preceding. I read that and thought, aren't they supposed to clarify what a word means? Because that didn't clarify it for me at all. I thought, that, that's complicated. I, once I looked at it 10 times, I understood what it meant. So, so stories are better. Here's what will help you and I understand cascade, because all of you experience this. A storm falls in the desert, and, and, and it leads to a cascade of water flowing through various dry riverbeds and washes, wave upon wave. Every one of you can picture that. A storm falls and water cascades through the desert. Or how about this one? If you're a business person, a 2007 subprime mortgage crisis hits. And what happened after that? It was a cascade of events, things like mortgage companies folding, housing values plummeting, stock market crashing that culminated in a recession. So you could argue from the one single event of that subprime mortgage crisis, a cascade occurred that led to the recession. Or let's give a very positive example. Some of you are single here today and you might experience soon a great first date. And from that great first date, it will lead to a cascade of other future dates that hopefully will go well, culminating in a great marriage. Some of us who have great marriages have experienced that and we hope that for you. So, so add it all up, I think you get the idea. It's a cascade, one single event, whether it be a storm in the desert or a subprime mortgage crisis or a great first date, that then leads to a succession of stages, as our definition goes, other events, that begin to fall like dominoes leading somewhere. We call it a cascade. And we're all familiar with it, and at times, it can be life-changing. And this brings us to Palm Sunday, because what you and I need to see today, Cactus, Northridge Chapel, those of you online, we need to see this, is that 2,000 years ago, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, that very first Palm Sunday, it led to a cascade of events that would literally alter the course of history and our very lives as well. It's true. In our time remaining, I want to talk about four things. I want to point to four things that were, were cascade events that flowed from this original Palm Sunday. Four things that build one upon another, a succession of stages, if you will, that changed everything about this world and our lives flowing from Palm Sunday. And here's the first cascading event or cascading reality that flows from Palm Sunday. And that is that because Jesus wrote it to Jerusalem, lost people have hope. And let me be clear, for the last 2,000 years, what I mean by this is that lost people, no matter where they are found, no matter what circumstance they might be in, no matter how far they seem to be from God, the Bible makes it clear that because Jesus rode into Jerusalem, every lost person on planet Earth in every generation has hope. You know, Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, was reflecting on this last week of Jesus' life and what he did. 
in one of his epistles, and he said this, and I like this. He's making sense of it theologically. He says, for Christ also suffered or died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being poured, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So a very simple statement here. Uh, notice what he's saying about Palm Sunday. The reason Jesus drove and rode into Jerusalem that, that first Palm Sunday was to die. Jesus knew it was going to happen. He tried to prepare his disciples that it was going to happen. He came into Jerusalem for a very specific person to die. But not just die at the hands of people who wanted to kill him. No, God was more in control of it than that. He was dying. Why? For our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the just for the unjust, as one translation says. Why? To bring us to God. Theologians would go on years later to call this the atonement. The fact that Jesus atoned for our sins. That when he was hanging there on the cross, he was paying the penalty that you and I should have paid for the sins that we've committed that keep us from God. And that's everybody on planet earth. Nobody's perfect. All of us have sinned, the Bible said, and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus came to die. He rode in to Jerusalem that final week to die as a substitute for our sins, the death that we should have died. He died. Why? So that one, we would be forgiven and enter into a wonderful relationship with God. And two, that we might then have a guarantee of heaven rather than having it be a hopeful, nebulous wish. And so don't miss the implications here, folks. This is real for us today. For those of you who are already believers, and it's probably the majority of you, my guess is you have people in your life who aren't believers. And you even have people in your life who, who you have trouble picturing ever becoming a believer. And if you relate to that, I do. I got people in my life where, where after all these years, it's, it's, it's almost impossible for me to ever picture them in church. <laughs> It's hard for me to picture them waving a palm branch in church, worshiping God in church, having a Bible study with me or a prayer meeting anywhere. It's so foreign to their thinking and their way of life that I've almost given up on them shamefully. And along comes Palm Sunday, and it says, Jamie, Jesus rode into Jerusalem so that every lost person on planet Earth would have hope and that you'd see it that way. Peter would go on in his second letter to clarify even more. He would go on to say, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. God wants everybody on planet earth to come to know him. And he sent Jesus so that could happen. And he wants you and I to embrace that reality and start to see the world around us through the lens of every lost person we know having hope. You know, as I've been reflecting on my life over the last 40 years, again, 40 years since I became a Christian, I've said this to you guys before, one of the things I'm super grateful for is that I've been blessed with amazing mentors over the years. A lot of people, even a lot of pastors, never had good influences around them or mentors. I did. I've served four churches and I've had just wonderful godly men. In fact, I made a list a few years ago of the 10 top men who have been mentors and influenced me and it just flowed so quickly. It was, it was easy to list them. The problem is, is that the older you get, your mentors start to die. Have some of you ever noticed that? 
I, I mean, I'm 57 this year, and, and mentors, by their very nature, should be older than you and wiser than you. So, you know, I lost Doug Flood, who was a dear mentor a few years ago, and then Fred Nothdorf died a few years ago from Detroit, and, and then Tom Schrader was a friend but also a mentor, and Tom died a couple years ago. And then just last month, Larry Crabb uh, went to be with the Lord in heaven. And, and I almost lost uh, one of my key mentors also during COVID last month, his name is Lud Goltz. His, his formal name, name is Ludwig Reinhold Goltz. Can you guess what nationality he is? <laughs> Tough old German guy. Lud this year will turn 87 years old. His parents were first generation immigrants to Canada from Germany. And Lud, when he was just a little guy, a very long time ago, went to a Moody Bible Institute here in the States met his wife Muriel, Lud and Murr, we called them, and they moved to the Cleveland area where they planted a church. And for decades, they were pastors in the Cleveland area, and eventually Lud became my pastor. When I first got saved, I went to that little church, and, and Lud mentored me, and he, he taught me how to pray and how to walk with God. Eventually, he baptized me. He performed the wedding with me and Kim. He helped me baptize my middle daughter, Abby, or, or, or dedicate her to the Lord when she was a baby. And Lud had a profound influence on me. And last month, I got a, a, an email saying that, that Lud was very sick. He had contracted COVID, and uh, he was in the hospital, and things were not looking good. Again, 86 years old, fighting COVID. And he was just shy of a respirator. He was in the ICU. And a lot of people in Cleveland, as you can imagine, were praying for him. In fact, I was really bummed because they were holding a prayer vigil in, in the snowy winter of Cleveland, right outside in the parking lot of his hospital, where they were just going to be praying for, for Lud, that God would spare him. The reason they were praying that is because Lud never retired. He eventually handed off his church to me in 2001 as a senior pastor, but he didn't leave. He said, you know, God's people don't retire, they just move into different seasons. And so for the last 20, 25 years, Lud has still been a fixture in my hometown, meeting with people and praying with them and loving on them, even though he doesn't receive a paycheck or isn't on staff anymore in a formal sense. So no one wanted Lud to go yet. Lud did pull through. Um, he actually, I mean, he's a tough old German guy. And he pulled through and, and survived COVID. And he sends a monthly prayer letter to those of us who pray for him. And, uh, and he sent a very long prayer letter talking about what it was like to almost die of COVID in ICU and, and the long recovery and all that. And I want to read for you just a portion of what he wrote because this should be the normal Christian life. And this is from a guy who believes that all lost people matter to God. He says at one point in his update, he says, uh, earlier in this update, I called this entire experience a fascinating adventure. Here's why. He said, in the midst of all that was going on, I felt content and confident in Jesus. When I was in the hospital, I hardly turned the TV on. Fortunately, over the years, I've memorized large portions of scripture. So when isolated, I spent my time reviewing and meditating on it. I spent a lot of time praying for others, my family, friends, and those God brought to my mind. <laughs> this is funny. He says, when nurses tried providing other things to pass the time, I shared what I was doing. That opened up some opportunities to share that because of Jesus, I felt secure and confident in him, no matter what the outcome might be. He says, during the first four days in the hospital, as my condition was worsening, I had a brief conversation with my 75-year-old roommate who prayed with me to receive Jesus as his savior. 
He says, then in the, it's just getting started. He says, then in the ICU room, I had many conversations with staff. And again, one night, one of the nurses prayed to receive Jesus as her savior. A number of others made time to talk about spiritual issues. Then in the final room where I was beginning the slow climb out of where I had been, one nurse came in one morning, obviously heavy hearted. I shared how Jesus could make a difference. She started wiping tears from her eyes. Within minutes, she was ready to pray, asking Jesus to be her savior. So I'm counting at this point. One, two, three, is there more? He goes on to say, each day I began asking God with a smile, what's up today, Lord? I'm available. I realize, Lord, that I'm on assignment. Enable Christ's light to shine through me. <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, this is a guy who believes that every person matters to God and that every lost person has hope. Even when he's struggling with COVID on death's door in the ICU, moments away from being intubated, he's like, do you know Jesus? because he has kept me secure and confident in my life. And as Paul, if he actually quotes Paul the Apostle in Philippians where he says, for me to live as Christ to die is gain. And the question that should be ringing for you and I, because Kim and I were really touched by this email, is do we believe this as well? Do we believe that every lost person that we see and run into today has hope, that they have redemptive value in the eyes of God? See, what concerns me about many Christians saying, you know I love you guys, is that we tend to substitute compassion and passion for salvation with anger at all that's going on in the world around us. And don't get me wrong, I get that we're angry. I get we have a right to be frustrated with what might be going on in the world around us. It's just that if they feel the anger more than they do the hope, we have failed. Amen? If they feel that we're more disappointed in what's happening around us than they do that we're hopeful that they might find Jesus and secure a place in heaven, then we've sent the wrong message. And the thing that Palm Sunday screams to you and me is to make sure that we have cemented in our hearts and minds that Jesus rode in the town to save people. He rode into town to die, thus offering salvation to everybody on planet Earth, Howard Stern and Mick Jagger included. And so everybody that might bother you with their lifestyle, at the end of the day, God says they have potential, they have hope because of Jesus riding into town. It's the first cascading event out of this Palm Sunday. Now, we're just ramping up, there's more. So here's a second cascading event flowing from Palm Sunday, and that is that because Jesus rode into town, you ready for this? God's abiding presence in our lives is here to stay. God's abiding presence in our lives is here to stay. Some of you say, well, hasn't that always been? <laughs> in short, no. <laughs> Read the Old Testament. There are times where God pulled his presence from Israel. He, he pulled his spirit from Saul. He, he, he was in and out of people's lives. Something changed with the coming of Jesus into, this, into Jerusalem that very first Palm Sunday. And let me explain. As we're gonna celebrate this week, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and then on Good Friday, we have two services here and at all other campuses, and, and we're gonna celebrate Jesus' death on a cross for our sins. Then next Sunday, obviously, we're gonna have a great celebration, Saturday night and Sunday, with, with Easter. Now, do you know what happened after Easter? A lot of Christians don't. This year, we're actually gonna focus on it. Our post-Easter series is gonna be the 40 days 
40 days, where Jesus walked this earth appearing to certain groups of people and individuals. So we're gonna take a look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. You're gonna like that. But then after 40 days, Jesus did what? He ascended into heaven. <laughs> he left us. And he said, don't worry, someday I'm gonna come back. And 2,000 years later, we're waving palm trees in, in, in church saying, come back, Jesus, come back. So the question becomes, why did he do that and what does that mean? When Jesus ascended into heaven and left us physically, he also gave some of the very last words that were words filled with profound hope and meaning. Look at what he says in Matthew 28, 20. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I, I know I do this way too much, but I looked up that word always in the Greek, and you know what it means? Say it with me, always. It, it means in every circumstance, every scenario, everything that you can envision in your life, he is with you. And some of you goes, no, well, it doesn't make any sense. He left, he left us physically, how can he be with us? Well, that's why where a tripartite view of the human person comes in, because you and I are body, we are soul, our emotions and our thoughts, and we are spirit that intangible part of us that connects with God. So Jesus left us bodily, but watch this. He said, but I'll always be with you in soul and spirit. That's the promise that he has given us. So though Jesus left, he says, I'm always gonna be with you to encourage you, strengthen you, guide you, speak my word to you. And to add even more substance and texture to this, let's not forget how Jesus would accomplish this abiding presence, because this involves the Trinity. And that is that he would accomplish his presence through the indwelling Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who now lives inside every believer who follows Jesus. So Jesus told us all about this in John 14. He said, I will not leave you as orphans when I leave, but I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit who will literally make his home in you and reveal me to you on a regular basis. So if you're a believer walking around here today, no matter how beat up you might be, take heart. You got a Holy Spirit living in you who's never going to leave you. As Ephesians 1 says, he's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance and his only job is to empower you and make Jesus real to you. And his presence is exactly what he wants you to know and to feel in your life. You see, this stuff is real. Some of you are saying today, I don't feel it, I don't get it. Well, I'm gonna help you that, with that, that in a minute. But, but first, just latch on to how real this has been for Christians over the years. When Paul the Apostle got in touch with this reality that God's presence will never be lifted once again, he wrote these words in Romans 8. I love this. He said, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> He's trying to cover all the bases, you notice that? Nothing will separate you and me from the love of God, his presence in our lives. And again, I know how some of you think, you think, well, I've done some pretty bad things and right now I'm in a pretty bad place and I'm not even sure I believe in him anymore, Jamie, and how about that? I got an answer to that, you're gonna like this. He's still with you, <laughs> he loves you. He has said elsewhere in his word that when you are faithless, which you might be right now, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And his promise to you is, I'll never leave you. 
You know, one of the reasons this is important is because, uh, and we're going to know more about this in the next few months and, and years, is that I'm not sure we've even scratched the surface on what this last year with COVID has done to the American psyche. I, I just, I, I talk with other pastors and suicide rates are up, that the loneliness and isolation among many seniors and young alike has just been brutal. You know, some people brag about how wonderful it's been to be close to family during this time, but you know, there are people that, that don't enjoy being close to family. And, and, and I don't mean that just to be funny. There, there are people who have come from abusive families, hurtful families. There's dynamics in the families that aren't helpful and to be forced to be closer to them has just been brutal on them. Or how about even the whole job market? Again, you know, people claim, well, it wasn't as bad as we thought, but we deal here with a lot of people who lost their job during COVID or, or are struggling in their job due to COVID. And, and, and again, there's just a lot of dynamics that I'm not sure that we've really seen the full weight of. And, and so I'm expecting that there's gonna be Christians and lost people coming out of COVID that, that are in desperate need of help. And we're actually gonna do a series in, in the latter half of May and June that we've entitled Defeating the Dragons Within. And we're gonna take a biblical look at things like depression, fear, anxiety, uh, things like disappointment. But we're gonna take a look at some of the nasty things that you and I deal with internally, especially come out of COVID, and, and what the Bible might say about those things. It's gonna be a real helpful series for us once we look at the post-resurrection experiences. But until that time, Here's what you and I might need to hear to tide us over because it's really the starting point. And that is that no matter what you've been through, no matter how beat up you might feel, that God has never left you. <laughs> He's always been with you. His faithfulness has never waned. His love for you has never dropped even a little bit. That though you might not always feel it, though you might not always experience it, that's another story. The fact is, he is with you. There was an old poem that used to be given to me. I'm not going to read it now, but it was given to me again when I first became a Christian. It was called Footprints in the Sand. Some of you might remember it. And the basic gist of the poem, spoiler alert, I'll just ruin it for you, is that it's somebody who was heaven looking back on earth and, you know, there's all these footprints of when Jesus is walking with them, but then there was this time where there was only one set of footprints. And the person said to Jesus, see, you left me at that time. You weren't with me. I was walking alone. And of course, if you read the poem, Jesus says, no, that was when I was, <laughs> that's when I was carrying you. You thought you were alone. It's only one set of footprints, but I was carrying you during that time. And, and now in hindsight, you see that. And see, that's the point of Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Maybe look at it this way. He rode into your life and he says, I'm never leaving. I'm never gonna let go of you. You can't even make, you let, make me let go of you. You don't have that much control. I'm here to stay. God's presence is a promise for his people coming out of Palm Sunday. So because of the cascading effects of Palm Sunday, lost people now have hope. God's abiding presence is here to stay. And then as if this were not enough, Notice with me a third cascading effect that Palm Sunday serves up to our lives. And that is that because Jesus rode into town, you ready for this? Our lives now have purpose and direction. Our lives now have purpose and direction. Now, some of you, again, I know how Christians think. You're a wily group of people. You're thinking right now, well, duh, Jamie, of course, I've read the purpose-driven life. I know that our lives have purpose and direction. 
Let's just pause for just four minutes and talk about this. Can you give me four more minutes of your time? I'm actually going to ask for about 15. But if you can give me four right now, then, then let's just talk about this one point because this is important. Here's the logic behind this. Jesus rides into town. He dies on Friday. He rises again on Sunday. Spends 40 days with us and then ascends into heaven. Now, have you ever read the rest of the New Testament and figured out what happened after that? It's real simple. He started his church. And when he started his church, they started to discover all these things about the resurrected Savior, about Jesus, and they started to write them down inspired by the Holy Spirit. We call it the New Testament. So Paul wrote 13 letters, and John wrote some letters, and Peter wrote some letters, and some guy named Jude wrote some letter. Somebody wrote a book called Hebrews. We have no idea who it was, but it's good stuff. And so all these letters were written, and they teach us about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. I've read them numerous times, as you would want your pastor to. They touch on just about every aspect of our lives. They write about how Jesus can revolutionize your failing marriage. They write about how he can help you with your wayward kids. They write about what to do with your money. They write about how to surrender your entertainment and hobbies to him and make sure your entertainment is wholesome and clean. It writes about how to approach politics and economics and the world around you. They write about how you should have friendships and what the friendship should be about. I've read them dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times. These letters give purpose and direction to our lives. It's a cascading effect of Palm Sunday. In fact, Paul at one point summed it up this way. I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's kind of the summary of all of it. Your life is not your own anymore. It's now about following Jesus and allowing him to invade every aspect of your being, all your thoughts, all your emotions, everything that you do, and allow him to make you the man or woman of God he wants you to be. And he wants to change every aspect of your life. And, and, and before you freak out about that, thinking, well, gosh, I'm off to a slow start, he's going to do it for the rest of your life. Amen? So it might take some time for some of us, but he's committed to it. I've been at this for 40 years, and you can ask my dear wife, there are things that we had hoped after 40 years would be different about this man, and they're not yet. And I don't preach about them because it's none of your business, but there are things in my character, one of them is patience, by the way, in which God has more work to do. And it's true for you as well. But here's the point. He's committed to doing that. And he loves you. And there's purpose and direction now to your life. This is a great story. Back in 1867, there was a Swedish chemist by the name of Alfred Nobel. And at that time, Nobel was living a normal, everyday life like many of you, simply doing what he loved. In this case, it was just mixing chemicals. And one day, he invented something that would change this world because it had explosive power. He invented something called dynamite. And not thinking very clearly, he posited that this invention was so powerful, now watch this, that it would make war too horrible for anybody to ever want again or want to engage in. And so he started selling it to anybody and everybody that would have it, assuming that nobody would ever use it for that bad of a purpose because it was so destructive. And as you can imagine, over the next couple of decades, he became a very rich man selling dynamite, yet he was also horrified at the suffering and misery it caused in numerous wars and conflicts. Thousands upon thousands of people died due to Noble's invention. 
And then one day, you can't make this stuff up, one day, toward the end of the 19th century, he awoke one morning, was reading the newspaper, and he read his own obituary. Would that freak you out or what? He, he read this in the newspaper he was reading. It said, Alfred Noble, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. He died a very rich man. <laughs> He knew right away what had happened. It was his brother that died the day before. And this newspaper reporter mixed up his brother with him, thought there was Alfred that died, and wrote this epitaph or this obituary in the newspaper. And here is Noble reading about himself, but he's not quite dead yet. After he figured out what happened here, he, he also realized that this is not the epitaph or the obituary that he would like written about his life. He was struck with the fact that he did not want to be known for inventing dynamite that killed a bunch of people and for being a rich man from it. And so what he did shortly before his death was to set up a significant award fund with his money that would be used for young scientists and writers who were committed to fostering peace. It became known as the Nobel Peace Prize, and still today, it's one of the most prestigious awards given to young scientists and writers who are committed to peace and not war. And at one point, after he set up this fund, this is an amazing point, because this will relate to you and me today, Alfred Noble said this. He said, every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. <laughs> because he read his epitaph and didn't like it. And he said, every man or woman ought to have the chance to correct his or her epitaph in midstream and write a new one. You see, that's the point of Palm Sunday. Why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem? Well, as we've seen, he rode in to give lost people hope. Uh, he, he rode in, uh, secondly, so that you and I might have purpose, with the third point, purpose and direction here. And he did it so that you and I can, can rewrite our epitaph from this point on in our lives, if we choose to do this. So let me ask the $10 question. This is what you should be thinking of right now. If you and I were having a cup of coffee right now, and I asked you what epitaph would be written about you if you died today? Rich, if I said, well, what would they write about you? What do you think they'd say? If somebody messed up your death with your brother or sister's death and, and wrote your epitaph in, in, in the AZ Republic tomorrow, what would it say? See, here's my fear. I, I think many of us would be, would be okay with an obituary like this. Well, Joe Businessman died this week, leaving behind three grown kids and a bunch of lovely grandkids. He liked horseback riding, golf, traveling, and watching professional sports. He was a churchman and went to church on a semi-regular basis. In lieu of flowers, please send a gift to Hospice of Scottsdale. That's the way that our epitaph would read today. And you see, for me, that's not enough. How about for you? I don't mind being known for my three wonderful kids and for my wife and grandkids someday. I don't mind being known that I went to church. I have to, I'm paid to. I don't mind being known for those things. But I'd rather be known for somebody who had the kind of character and actions that influence one life at a time. That had the kind of character and actions that left a mark, a legacy on this world around us. I'd rather people write about that and that's the point, is that Palm Sunday gives you a chance to rewrite your epitaph, to rewrite the purpose and direction of your life. A man rides into town. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. 
and our lives are never to be the same. The cascading effects go on. Now, I'm going to wrap this up in a minute with one big challenge, but before I do, there's, there's one final thing that this Palm Sunday experience produces, and this one kind of brings it all together, so we don't want to overlook this, and that is that because of Palm Sunday, you ready for this, we don't have to walk alone. Because of Palm Sunday, we don't have to walk alone. Some of you are saying, well, you already covered that. God's presence is with us. We're not walking with him. That footprint's in the sand thing. No, that's not what this means. What this means is, is that because of Palm Sunday, you now have a thing called the community of faith, the church, in which Jesus set up this system, if you were, this community, in which you're now to walk with other people flowing out of Palm Sunday. And some of you say, well, Jamie, that's kind of a stretch with the text, isn't it? No, it's not. Because halfway through this week that Jesus rode into town, he's having a private meeting with his disciples, and he says exactly this. He says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you're to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So watch this, the hallmark, the acid test of whether you and I are truly followers of Jesus is not how often you read the Bible. It's not how often you pray. It's not how much money you give. It's not even how moral you are, because most of you aren't that moral. So the reality is, is that those aren't the tests for whether or not you're a Christian. God wants you to do all those things. Don't hear me saying that. No, the acid test, according to Jesus, is are you walking with others, loving them and allowing them to love you, are you showing that we're a community of faith and a community of love? That's the acid test. And sure enough, when the very first Christian church gets set up, this is the description. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. So there was a community in that very first church that, that was patterning itself after John chapter 13. This is what Jesus' vision was, that when he rode into Jerusalem at that time, what would happen at that point is that people would start to realize that lost people matter to God and that his presence is now in town and here to stay and that purpose and direction should follow us all the days of our lives and nobody walks alone. And again, I know how some of you are thinking, because nobody gets this more than a pastor. You're thinking right now, Jamie, I've tried it, and these people are weird, and they let me down, and they really hurt me, and, and I'm here today, but I'm here alone, and I'm not going to risk it again. Well, then you're going to be alone <laughs> much of your life. Do we all understand something? Nobody gets let down more by church people than a pastor, amen? Because you, know, you guys draw close to me, and your lives are really messed up, and you don't know how to love, and all this other stuff. And so some of you are going to write me emails on that one, which just proves my point. And so, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> and I love you. I love you. And I know you love me. It's just that when two people who try to love each other but are fallen, you know, get close, what happens? You know, Kim says about me on a regular basis, this will make you laugh too. She said, Jamie, after like 30 years of marriage, she said to me, you know, you're, you're like a porcupine. You're like, you know, really bristly on the outside, but you're warm and gushy on the inside. I think that was a compliment. I think she was just trying to say that, that you know, you're not always what I need you to be, but deep down, and, and, and all joking aside, why would she say deep down there's something worth loving there? Because God made me in his image, and he's redeemed me and loved me, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. And that all goes back to Palm Sunday. And because of that, I, I'm, not, I'm now called not to walk alone. And the call is to you as well. 
We gotta wrap this up, but here's, here's the great challenge of Palm Sunday. And again, I say this to you often, but this is really true. With all the four things we've looked at today, lost people having hope, God's presence never waning, and, and then, what was the third thing? <laughs> Purpose and direction in our lives, and, and then no one walking alone. With, with all those things, do you realize you have a choice in your life with those things? There are plenty of Christians today that long for these things, but they make choices not to pursue them. There's a cascade waiting to flow through their lives and they say, no, thank you, Lord. I'd rather be angry than love lost people. <laughs> I'd rather be lonely than embrace your presence by faith. I'd rather do my own thing than fall under your purpose and direction. And I'd rather walk alone, thank you, Lord, than I would try to love these people within my church. You have the choice here. But if you do those things, you're probably still saved. I'm not saying you're going to hell or anything like that because your belief in Jesus is what saves you. But you'll ruin Palm Sunday for your life. <laughs> you might as well put the palm down and go your own way because the careening effects of Palm Sunday is that he invades your life in a wonderful way. He rode into town. He's ridden into your life and he wants to stay. And there's a lot he wants to do. So let him in. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for all that you are to us. I thank you for this day that, you know, for 2,000 years we've celebrated as a tradition, Lord, but it's so much more than that. We're celebrating what Jesus originally meant to do coming into town. And Lord, now we know a bit more. We know that there's a, a cascade of events that occurred from this one single event that change everything about our lives when it comes to how we view the world around us and, and how we view your presence and, and how we view purpose and direction and Lord, even how we view all the things going on around us, even those around us. So God, I pray that you would just be with us as we go out of here now. Help us to do a good audit of our lives and the choices that we need to make to draw closer to you would we make. And Lord, would you draw close to us as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen. amen.